You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Hi, welcome back, and thanks for joining us again on another what we hope to be great show of uh, Future Proof Workplace. And Morag, it's been a head spring week. What have you been up to? <laughs> little bit of this, little bit of that. So this week I'm doing two things. I have been working with a client. Uh, design thinking was one of the new topic areas we're exploring and resilience in change. So rather than change management techniques, it's the how do you stay in the game and replenish your batteries when you're surrounded by a lot of change. But that yeah. was the beginning of the week and the end of the week. I am heading on vacation to Barcelona. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Love Barcelona. That's such a great place. Never been. Looking forward to it. What about yourself then, Linda? What have you been up to? Well, you know, I just had a wonderful sabbatical with uh, some colleagues from uh, the Brain-Based Leadership Organization, and we were going through similar kinds of things, talking about resilience and change in the brain and how you can leverage and understand certain parts of the brain that keep you in a more predictive mode, which would be more non-resilient and how you need to address those modes and what you can do so that you can move into more purposeful, resilient kinds of actions and activity to keep you going forward into the future. It was a fascinating discussion. In fact, I'm going to be doing a couple of workshops on it and linking it back to our book and and work. And I've been talking with the Discovery Channel, too, to be doing some things. So that should be loads of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Can't wait to hear more. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and as you know, I've been railing about talent management is so 20th century and building mm-hmm. capacity is where we need is where it's at for the 21st century. So I've been doing some things around that. It's been lots of fun. Never a dull moment. So that kind of leads us to our guest this week. Uh, Nigel Payne. And I'm so excited to have Nigel. I ran into Nigel through my colleagues at Duke Corporate Education, and we were at a conference together, uh, a training conference in Atlanta, and it was a, a great, a great experience. And I heard Nigel talk and I said, oh, I love this and I love this guy. And why he's so powerful, I think, in our discussions, Morag, is because a lot of what we talk about is how learning and education has got to adjust. Mm-hmm. And Learning institutions really haven't changed since the mid-1950s, and they're still doing stuff that comes out of IBM and, and um, you know, some of the other GE and some of the other leading thinkers. But the world has shifted dramatically and the work, workplace has shifted dramatically. And Nigel really talks about how learning and development has got to make a dramatic shift as well. So, you know, and I know it's what you talk about, too. Yeah, well, I'm excited to learn more. Yeah, yeah. So Nigel's been involved in corporate learning for almost 20 years. He was appointed in uh, April 2002 as head of BBC's Learning and Development. That had to be fun, Nigel. What a great job. Um, He really helped uh, teams transform the learning function and put it on the corporate map. He teaches uh, on the CLO doctoral program in the University of Pennsylvania. That's fun. I just ran into a guy from there the other day. And his first book called The Learning Challenge, Dealing with Technology, Innovation, and Change in Learning and Development, 
a great book, and he's got his most recent book, Building Leadership Development Programs That Work. Now, that's uh-huh. great. Right, Morag, you know, that's got a lot oh, yes. there, you know, and he's got a, a monthly TV program uh, on learning, Learning Now TV. So, Nigel, so glad that you could join us today. Thank you so much. Well, it sounds like we still have the sound issue. So, Nigel, why don't you try switching headsets again? And if you can come in, just interrupt us, but we're here for you. So what really excites me is the title of Nigel's book, that Building Leadership Development Program, Zero Cost to High Investment Programs That Work. Because as you know, Linda, with... We've had between us probably 50 years of experience of building leadership programs. Right. And uh, often uh, they don't deliver on the promises that um, are wanted. And why would you say that is? Why would I say that is? I Mostly I think it happens because the people designing the programs are removed from the real needs of uh, the organization. And uh, usually when I trace it back, Morag, every time I have uh, had a program that doesn't hit the mark, it's because I did not have enough access and did not do enough interviews Mm. of of, uh, the people in the organization. I agree. We're about to start partnering with a, a client in the UK and very excited to get to know their business. And our first approach, like yours, is the how can we get immersed? And we're going to be interviewing about 30 leaders of the 70 that are going to be going through this program so that we can learn firsthand what are some of the challenges that they're experiencing. So tell me a little bit more about how you go about that diagnostic process then, Linda, when you're working with a client. Yeah, well, you know, really, Morag, it's it's um, relatively simple. I ask them questions like, you know, what are your biggest challenges? If you were going to spend time uh, in a leadership program for five days, what would make it worth your while? What what outcomes do you want to walk out with? Um, what keeps you up at night? A whole series of those kinds of questions, which I find are people, A, they love to talk about them, um, and they, they don't get a chance to be that um, thoughtful. Uh, most of the time in their in their daily interactions. I also find that um, it helps you hear their language. So mm. that working and facilitating, you're using case studies and stories that they've told you. Yes. Uh, and you're using language that they understand from their culture, uh, not the jargon of the field. And that makes a huge difference. It does. It's interesting, actually, how quickly assumptions can undermine the success of a program. It just reminded me we were working with a an ice cream manufacturer um, a while back, and uh, we were brought in because engagement was low, and we were asked to work with those who are working on the manufacturing line to see what we could do. And it was perceived by management as being a compensation issue. Well, Linda, what's the first thing that you know about ice cream? That I love it. Well, they're okay. They're, they, you love it. That's good. What's your favorite flavor? Um, well, I'm a, I'm sort of a bland person. I like vanilla and chocolate mixed Ooh, together. Good vanilla. But the second thing that we know about ice cream is then that it's cold. Right. All right. So as part of our diagnostic process, we spent a few days working on the manufacturing line. And trust me, if ice cream has to be kept cold, so does the working environment in which it is yeah. produced. Right. And so what we found was that the lack of engagement wasn't necessarily the compensation issue. It was the fact that it's cold, that right. when we went to the break room, the vending machine only threw out 
junk food and candy, nothing warming. And so some of our recommendations, in addition to the how do you build a sense of team, was around creating a a better working environment and certainly a better break room environment. And these are what can make a huge difference to leadership development programs. It's not just what happens in the classroom. It's how do you then build an environment where people can apply those behaviors back in the workplace? Well, and, and it seems sort of foolish to me, and I've, I've had those experiences as well, where, uh, you know, people are creating an, an intervention for uh, a root cause that they really don't know. And in fact, here was an environmental root cause in your yep. situation that really didn't even require, frankly, yep. a, uh, a, a training program. And that goes to Nigel's uh, uh, you know, Nigel's point, whom I think we've got back, is that, you know, um, it's a yep. point of it's zero zero based uh, uh, interventions from training, which I think is a is a great way uh, to think about building leadership programs. So, Nigel, are you on? Well, I hope you can hear Yay! me. Yay! <laughs> Goodness me, I'm so sorry. I don't know what was going on. I, I could hear everything you were saying, and I was trying to intervene, and yeah. I wondered why are they ignoring me. Well, there <laughs> you, you go. You couldn't hear me. Nigel. <laughs> so give us your thoughts on what you on what you heard us saying. Jump in, buddy. Right. Well, there, there is one really important point which I, I think I want to get across. When you're talking about the diagnostics, uh, yes. my view is, and what came very strongly out in the research I did for the book, was it yes. was incredibly important to try to understand the experience of being led in the organization. Mm. Yes. Not just the leaders. In, uh, in other words, if you can confront the leadership with the reality of what it's like to work in that organization, what it's like to be led by them, you often open doors and people who are kind of resistant, we don't do this, we're doing it okay together, it's all right, we can't afford it. Suddenly the penny drops. There's some awful things going on and we've got to fix them. So you get an agenda that comes from the bottom up, not the top down. And that can combine with some of the issues that the leaders tell you. That combination is very, very powerful in my experience. Yeah, I love that, Nigel. I I really love that. Now, are you able, when you go in to work with a client, are you able to get that that kind of access? Do you make it part of your agreement to do business with them? Or or how do you do do that? Yes. Often, if I'm, I'm usually partnering with an internal team, so yeah. a group who's been charged with setting up a program. So we work on that together, and I say to them, "Here, here are some questions." We work on a series of questions. They can go and talk. That no one's going to stop them talking to people. So yeah, yeah. it's a partnership, and I want them to understand it as much as me. I don't want to be the, the one enlightened person in a room of darkness. I want to be the, the least enlightened person in a room full of light. So we, we co-create that. And the second point is that when we start to build the program, we always involve the people who are I, – I insist that we involve the people who are going to be recipients so mm-hmm. that we test, we, we – work in a very agile way so that the material is tested in a very early stage and then at a more refined stage. So that by the time you're actually going to launch something, you've got the group who are going to be on the receiving end pretty much on your side and recognizing that this will work. And if you co-create, 
they do not want to be part of anything that fails. So no. they will work as hard as you to make it work across the organization. So that, that would be my two tips. Ex- Love it. Work out what the experience of leadership is and then co-create as much as you possibly can. You don't have to involve everybody, but there, there are always people who are interested and willing to give up a bit yes. of time. And what's interesting to me, Nigel, just building on that is just how much that can start building a culture of candor and debate. Because yeah. I don't know yes. about you, we can go and meet somebody as a complete stranger and say, so tell us what it's like to work here. And they will offload. And I'll say, well, you've been here 10 years. Have you mentioned that to so-and-so? And they'll go, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. And I'm thinking, but you've only just met me, but you can do yeah. it to me. But by opening that floodgate, it builds the communication up, down and across. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Because part of what makes leadership development programs work is to create an environment where you can tell the truth and where you can admit failure, admit weakness. And wh- one of the things that I really insist that happens is that we don't think of programs, we think of continuums. So that by, you finish the formal bit maybe, but then there's a whole bunch of other areas to continue the work. And the best programs, the leadership group themselves, fix it themselves. Because if they're opening up, they're telling the truth, they're admitting where things don't work, they're committing to doing things together, you get that behavior change, which is, to me anyway, is the absolute bottom line. If nothing happens, you've wasted your money. However wonderful the experience was, you've actually wasted your money. Yeah, I totally agree. What percentage do you think of, of leadership development from your research and, and discussion is, is really, you know, not hitting the mark from your point of view? I, I would say the majority. I would say maybe 60% is not hitting the mark. But what you get is uh, a, bit of, a bit of activity. You stir the water, but it calms over very, very quickly. And many programs, within two weeks, people have forgotten the main points because that they they sit there going, yes, that's right, I should I should do this. They go back into the workflow, stuff happens, they get involved in day-to-day, business as usual, BAU, and within two weeks, they've kind of remember it vaguely, but A, they're not going to implement it. It's too hard. Maybe their manager is challenging them saying, uh, what, what are you playing at? Come on, get back, do the work, focus on the job. And that is the, that is the absolute enemy of any kind of behavior change. So you, you, it's hard. You know, I, I think we, run, we, we sometimes make the mistake of believing that it's easy. You just have a, a good program, everything's sorted out. It's not true. That to change people's behavior, sometimes you're digging into entrenched habits that have maybe been 10 years in the making, and you don't change those in an afternoon, telling someone what to do. You change it by them experiencing the, the benefits of doing things differently and by continuously rehearsing it and rehearsing it, where it until the point where it becomes a new habit. So essentially, you're replacing old habits with new habits. And there should be no possibility of getting out of that commitment. And one of the other weaknesses of many leadership programs is that there is zero consequence of non-compliance. So if you do it, that's fantastic. If you don't, no one really cares. In my world, everybody who fails to move forward or tries to reassert the old behaviors has to be dealt with. And seriously, because when you're being led and you see great leadership on the left, terrible leadership on the right, 
then it just builds chaos and resentment and it builds real disillusionment and a lack of trust. So that there has to be universal agreement of behaviors and they have to be implemented rigorously. And so it's tough, you know, I, I, I do not go in saying this is easy. I go in saying this is really, really hard, but if you want it to work, we can make it work. And that's the, that's the bottom line. If you want it to work, we can make it work. But don't don't go half measure. Don't compromise. Don't say, well, you know, she's a really powerful person in the organization. We don't really want to upset her. Oh, yes, you do. There, mm-hmm. That's the very person you want to upset. So if the rest of the organization see things changing, they'll go with you for the most part. But if right. they see nothing happening, they just see it as, oh, yet another jolly Yet another big investment in in the top group. Yet another lack of activity, lack of outcome. That's so it's, all these things are important. So, so Nigel, how do you specifically, you know, because obviously there's a, a a front end component here where people go through this experience and they understand the behavior. Can you share with our audience how you keep the behavior change piece alive? Which, by the way, from our study of neuroscience, we know that people can and, and in fact will groove new behaviors if they're supported correctly in it. So how do you keep that alive so the new behaviors do in fact take root and take hold? I suppose the, the fundamental key to it is to have your line manager working with you. That, and I, I remember um, seeing some research which said that where the line manager helps you develop your own action plan and then works with you on implementing that action plan, there's a 70% greater chance that that things will change. So if you have no line manager commitment, then you can almost kiss the the implementation, kiss, kiss the impact goodbye. But if you can sit down with your line manager who has some evidence that person has worked with you understands what you really need to get out of this program, the drivers that you need to emphasize, helps you set up a personal action plan. You go through the program working on elements of that action plan. And then critically, when you leave the program or whatever it is, the experience, that line manager will work with you to keep an eye on things, to help support you, coach you into those new behaviors. So I always say that you know you really won't see a huge amount of changing for six months. But in six months, the, the pew, would you like me to do once a week or phone you? If you if you if you're having difficulty, call me on this number. You you end up with this kind of support infrastructure where no one will fail because no one is allowed to fail. So that it's a kind of all of us together or no one. Not this is all about focusing on individuals. That's why I call it leadership, not leader. We used to focus on leader development. Uh, on, it's all about individuals, but it's not. It's about an ethos. It's about something that runs through the organization that, uh, mm-hmm. that encourages people to follow and want to work with those leaders and feel that that leader's job is to get the best out of me who reports to him or her. So it, it's creating that culture of continuous improvement running through the organization from the point at which you kick off whatever it is that you kick off a program, or more often than not, an experience. And I think the one weakness in my book is that it's called leadership development programs, and it, it shouldn't really. It should be building leadership development that works, and that so may be me, programs. 
but there are so, plenty of other alternatives. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about the semantics then, the difference between programs and or experiences. Where, where are they the same? Where are they different? Tell us more about that, Nigel. An experience, a, a program is a structured piece. A program is you're going somewhere, you're, you're doing something um, over a, a period of time. An experience can be being put into a different part of the organisation for two weeks. It could be being sent to another part of the country or, or a, a different office of the organisation where you're kind of living something. You're not actually having a structured learning experience in front of you. And often those two things combine. So, so for example, one organization I work with, they didn't have a huge amount of money, but they had some. So they took a group of, um, of leaders into the National Gallery in London and they took them to one painting and they made them sit for 20 minutes looking at this one painting, wow. which many of them found excruciating. And they yeah. were told, no phones, just look at this painting. And then after they looked at it, they, they discussed it a bit. So they, what are you seeing? What is it doing to you? What is it telling you? After, the, after that discussion, which lasted about another 20 minutes, they brought in a curator who was an expert in that area, who then talked for half an hour about what was going on in the painting. And you could see the scales falling from people's eyes. Wow, I never saw that. Wow, I never, yes, of course, I get that now. And, the whole, and they're going back into the office. So what, what the point of it was, was to say, what you think is happening might well not be what is happening. What you think is, you know, you may well not know. So the idea was just to open eyes. And that was an experience. It was structured a little bit, but it was an experience that was, yes. for some of the group, an absolute revelation. And there are other ways of doing it. You know, one of the chapters in the book is about Antarctica. I, I led a leadership program on Antarctica. Now, not everybody can go to Antarctica, but <laughs> that experience of, of what I call it, complete dislocation and complete discomfort. You're in a very strange place. And disconnection from everything you know, everything that is everything that makes you what you are and makes you important take that away you know you're in an area where you're utterly dependent on other people and i found those three d's lead to a fourth d which is discovery so i think you can apply that model and we don't do enough discomfort we're too worried about making people happy about people saying oh i love this program sometimes the best programs you don't love because that you feel uncomfortable but it's oh, discomfort like with support yeah. and insane you're not putting anyone at risk but so being discomforted being dislocated yeah. and disconnected, you start to see the world differently. And that like opens that. the way to behaviour so change. The discomfort. And it sounds like it challenges the hidden biases and habits that are causing leaders to be on um, autopilot to make them think differently, like the painting example you gave earlier. So what are some of the common biases and assumptions that you're finding that executive sponsors are making around the leadership development? They bring you in. What are the common biases that you have to shift from the get-go to help ensure a successful outcome? Uh, the, the very first one is we, we could we yeah the, the very the, the very the most obvious and sometimes the most difficult is we can do this in two weeks. You know, I, I, when someone says we've got a month to fix this, yes, you just have to say that is not going to happen. You right. give me six months, or we walk away. 
Right. So that is so often there's a crisis, there's a problem, we have to fix it fast. And the idea that uh, leadership development is like, you know, uh, turning a screw, you just go, it's done. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Everything's fixed. It's not like that. Firstly, that it's that it's, it, it isn't an instant fix. Secondly, that it takes complete commitment from the top. And if the behaviors modeled by the top three in an organization don't reflect what you're trying to do in the leadership program, you might as well give up at that point too. And the third is you as CEO or you as the senior executive team have to commit that you will deal with non-compliance, that this is serious enough for it to involve people at the very top, that when you say it's going to happen, it's going to happen universally across the organization. And, and the four things, that, that reality check that I mentioned at the beginning, if you confront the senior team with usually how much worse it is than they ever dreamt, the other three things happen much easier. So that, that you often have to shake out an idea that, well, I, I just send them to Harvard. No, it's a great place. You know, I, I went there myself 15 years ago. It's the, it's the, it, now, it's true, it is a great place, and there's great programs, but sending someone to Harvard is not sufficient because the behavior change won't happen. It's out of context. You go to Harvard usually for generic stuff. Generic is fine, but someone has to supply the context, and, the, and you cannot t- hand over responsibility to a third party. And I don't care what that third party is. I say Harvard, it can be any one of a thousand or 10,000 organizations that do leadership development. They can all do a good job. But if you think it's their job to ensure that this works in the organization, you're wrong. Their job is to stimulate and provide structure and maybe provide ideas. It's your job to reinforce the message, to make sure that things really happen over time. And I underline over time because yeah. it does take time. Uh, Nigel, I, I love that. And I think that that's, uh, that's really the, the way Morag and I approach things as well. I think it's extremely important. Otherwise, you're just doing a sheep dip, that old term of, mm-hmm. you know, a training program. And yes. you think, yeah, well, it's, it's got to affect the organization somehow. It's got to be positive. But you said uh, 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 before um, – you said, talk to us about your model that you use. Are you there, Nigel? You, you asked me about what, okay, what about, model I use. I, yes. I, I don't. Okay. Well, I, I don't. One of the things the research indicates that uh, it didn't matter what model you use. That, ah. that don't don't spend all your time agonizing the difference between servant leadership, ethic leadership, resonant leadership, whatever it might be, they're pretty much all the same. And if you took the the outcomes and dropped them in a hat, you wouldn't be able to pick one out and say, well, that's definitely a resonant leadership outcome. They're mostly the same. I, I think the model is less important than the process that you use to make that model come alive. So that what, what I, I always do is create a before, a during, and an after. And the before is very, very important. You prepare people for that experience. And you prepare them by getting them to recognize that there are things they need to fix and that there's things that need to be fixed in the organization and things that need to be fixed personally. So that, that ultimately, a successful leadership development experience or program emerges with individual agendas for every single person, not generic 
just do all of you this kind of thing. So when someone says, I understand that, but for me, I need to do this, or I need to go further, or I need to explore more, or I need more help than, than, than the average participant, that's where I start to think it's a, a success. And the, the, to define the program is based around what you said right at the very beginning of this conversation. You define the program around where the biggest needs are for the organization. What, what will move the needle? Where are the real issues that the organization is grappling with? So if it's worried about disruption or it's beginning to be disrupted, that's the kind of focus. If it needs more creativity, more agility, more innovation, that's the focus. If it's fixing basic behavioral issues where people are treated badly, there's a negative culture, there's a lack of trust, that's the focus. So I think if you go in with, well, we're going to do this, regardless of what you tell me is an issue, you're kind of setting yourself up for it not to work very well. A uh, huge failure. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I'm Nigel, on the other end of the scale then, tell me what's the impact then of a well-led organisation? Uh, it's just like chalk and cheese. That, that a well-led organisation is made up of empowered individuals. Uh, staff who feel they want to get up in the morning and go to work. Staff who feel to a limited degree autonomous uh, motivated, trust the organization, feel they're going places, feel the organization is a great place because that is going places, and just produce so much more outcomes, output, than organizations where there are bitter, twisted, disillusioned, unhappy staff. Now, you know, I, I've been into hundreds and hundreds of organizations, like I'm sure you both have, and I've never, ever seen innovation happen amongst miserable people. It just doesn't work. You won't have commitment amongst miserable people, and you won't build trust amongst miserable people. So that where you have that kind of buzz, it really resonates, and it, you feel great. You walk into that organization, and you feel you yourself feel good, and you walk out at the end of whatever time you spend there feeling, wow, that's so, I'd like to work there. But there are so many places where you walk in and you walk out thinking, thank goodness I don't work in that place. Thank goodness I can walk, I can walk away at the end of the day. All these people trapped in that kind of miserable culture. So I, I think it's very, very important to create that sort of well-led, positive, empowered organization. And in this world of so much volatility and change, if you haven't got people who care, then they're kind of let the organization fall away under their feet and go, well, not my problem. Not my problem. I'll walk away. I'll find another job. Interesting. So, so how do you, uh, what, you know, you, you pose this question, which I, I really love. Um, what does the future workplace look like in your mind's eye? I think that's a very interesting question. I'm thinking a lot about future workplaces because there is so much churn around what do we mean by work. Yeah. I'll give you a few examples of future workplaces. The first one is the question of who works there is very complicated. 
because there are some people who work full-time, some people who work part-time, some people who are on contract, some people who are brought in for you know, X number of days, not as, a, as contractors, but as external experts. You have contractors, maybe subcontractors. You have people who work for other organizations, but actually work in your organization. So even just putting your finger on who works in is very, very difficult. And that requires an awful lot of um, care and skill in leading those sorts of people. When you've got six people in the room and there are four different employment modes uh, sitting in front of you, so that's different. The second thing is that I I think the physical nature of work is changing. And what I mean by that is not that everyone's going to work, but that where you have a physical space, you turn it into a place where people can physically interact that that feels open and feels like dialogue and narrative and it doesn't feel like slammed doors closed spaces boxing environments and that so therefore the physical space has to echo the kind of place that you, you want to build and thirdly incredible flexibility that the idea that people have to turn up to work at a certain time and mm-hmm. uh, and, and must stay until a I think we'll look back in 20 years and go, what What were we smoking? What a crazy idea. Now, the idea that, that you disempower women, you disempower people with, you know, with, with sick relatives, you disempower people, prefer to come in, work really early or prefer to work really early. I think we're dealing with increasingly output measures, not input measures. In other words, you do your job. You, you communicate you're part of a team. And how you achieve that is kind of up to you. And increasingly, there are these places that I call third space, but I suppose that's not a very elegant term. What I mean by that is there are places that are not home, not work, but somewhere in between that people converge in. Like WeWork, for example, has got huge because of the third space idea. So that companies take a table. They don't take an office. or They, they allow 50 or 60 staff to, as an alternative to work at that table. And that table is a communal table. So people talk to other people, they get to know other organizations, but it's not having to be kind of tied to home. There's advantage in being somewhere, mm-hmm. but there's usually disadvantage in having to go one fixed place every single day of your life. So I, I, I think that daily commute, all of that is going to be blowing by a focus on getting the best out of people, however people want to work. So work becomes more like what people want rather than what people want has to fit into what works. So I think there's going to be huge, huge changes. And I also think organizations will be more fluid. They will they will merge, demerge, split, die, rise up again. Even very, very big companies will remake themselves on a much more regular basis. The way that you know, GE is going through a lot of trauma at the moment, but it's trying to remake itself as a digital manufacturing organization. That is a massive, massive shift, but it has to do it because even a company as powerful and successful as GE needs to recognize that there are you know, dogs barking at the, at the door <laughs> and ready to break down if they don't yep. get it right. 
So uh, technology is obviously one of the biggest enablers and it's become ubiquitous. We both notice it and obviously ignore it in how we do yeah. work and our attitude to work. And I know that in the in your book, Building Leadership Development Programs, Zero Cost to High Investment Programs at Work, you've got a whole chapter on technology. So it's not new in the learning environment, but what's different now yes. that makes it sticky versus next, 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 multiple yes. guest question, let's move on. How have you embraced it in the programs and the experiences that you are co-creating? It's because the, the world outside work has changed. Uh, we, we, I'm holding my iPhone in my hand. Mm -hmm. It rarely is really more than two feet away from me. Maybe, maybe in extreme cases, you know, I put up with three or four feet away from me. But essentially, this device, which is got multiple, it's unique. My iPhone does not resemble probably anyone else's iPhone in the entire world because I choose certain apps. I use, I, I use it in particular ways. This is such a personal part of my life and I know how to use it. And when I get into work, I expect the same kind of autonomy, flexibility and mobility that I get outside the office, outside the work environment. But so often work is like going back 20 years. Right. And you know, I use Zoom a lot, you know, for example, as my communication medium. I have a Zoom room. I, so many companies say, oh, I can't use Zoom. Why not? Well, there's a plugin. That it, it, it's a very small plugin. We're not allowed to download anything. Oh, um, my computer's completely locked down. I can't even go to www.zoom.us because we can only go to certain websites and you suddenly see it's like going from the light to darkness when you come into many organizations now i know there are huge issues around security and I, i'm well aware of that but i also believe that you, we have to work out how to use technology most effectively that mirrors the experience that people already have and doesn't turn it into a far, far lesser, ugly experience in the workplace. Because using using your technology outside is not an ugly experience. It's a very user-centered user experience. And it, it's, it's pleasurable. We love our technology, which is why it's, it does so well. But we often, in the workplace, we hate our technology. We want to throw the laptop, which is six years mm -hmm. old and hardly works. We hate the network. We don't like the apps. And everything is ugly and very unfriendly. And you have to spend lots of time with notes by your side to work out the 16 key combinations to open a new, a new file record or make yep. an amendment. You know, crazy stuff. I think we've got to start to simplify and recognize that the world won't go back. This is it. And we no. can embrace that and get more out. And the challenge is not just how do we leverage technology to deliver learning experiences, but also how do we learn to lead and be led through technology? Because it is ubiquitous to the to Absolutely. everything, how we live and how we work yes, every it, day. It's so true. Yeah. Linda. So true. So yeah, Nigel, there's there's no reason why I can't pass by a person's desk and my iPhone bleeps and says, you should be talking to you should be talking tomorrow or reminds me at four o'clock have you said thank you to anybody today you know, there are ways in which that sort of nudge technology that, that mm. we use so much outside to encourage us to, to stay fit to walk to be active not to eat rubbish you know all the things that we 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 are kind of accepted now you could translate that into work and and it will do the same as it does outside work you know my behavior 
to close my three rings on my Apple Watch is an obsession. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I will do press-ups at 10 midnight because I'm still 20 calories down. <laughs> and that is real behavior. I've yes. done that previously. I, I'm, I'm wedded to trying to change my life to reflect that's what that watch is telling me in a very crude way as a healthy lifestyle. The same thing could happen in work. Now that kind of nudge technology, AI beginning to learn about me and what I need, not me generic, me splodged like 5,000 others, but me personally. So I think that personalization, that really focus on the UX, the user experience, and, and lots of apps being plugged together that do very small things very, very well. That seems to be the future of, of technology and not just for learning, no, for work, you know, in your work. I think that's absolutely fundamental. Well, you know, we have a, uh, a listener question here, Nigel, and I think it fits really well. I, I, I have a question for you too, so it's gonna be a double barrel here. Um, something that I think about a lot, which is, the designs of our organizations now, the big, you mentioned it, GEs, the, you know, the, uh, the, the IBMs, the Amazons, um, you know, that they're really all big corporate structures, the SAPs, the Siemens. Uh, but those structures are going to be changing a lot based on the things that you have yes. just said. So the first question is, how do you yes. take a big behemoth organization of the 20th century designed to deliver things that were important in the 20th century and move it into that sort of flexible node. And then the question from our listeners is, do you see businesses changing for the better or for the worse? Which I think is a powerful question. So can you can you grapple with both of those? Things? Yes, it is. I, I, I'm gonna turn locked on this. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't say they're changing for the worst. I think that we're probably at a low point. I think that most people are under ridiculous amounts of pressure, uh, are dragged in 16 different ways, focus only on surviving the day or the morning or the hour, have far too many pointless meetings, uh, are held to account far too often without ever being given respect and autonomy. Uh, I think we we live in low trust organisations for the most part. We don't even we don't even believe people will log on. We have we have, we have to check when they log on and log off because uh, otherwise they're clearly not working. All of that uh, I think will be thrown out in favour of, of more open environments. For example, what what is clear from you, we talked about neuroscience. What is clear from neuroscience is that the brain needs a chance to reflect. Yep. People need a chance to reflect on what they're doing in order to improve, reflect on what they're doing in order to build for the future. And yet we, we build their lives in a way that not only do they not have time for reflection, but they're punished if they even blink uh, w- without being focused. So things really do have to change. And, and I think it can't get any worse because I think that there'll be a big stuttering in the economy if things get any worse. And if you take a company like GE, the, the big thing that GE did was they moved their headquarters from a, from kind of sleepy suburbia, where it was a very closed environment, where you, know, no, you, you could go there, but only by invitation, to a completely open environment in Boston on the, on the waterfront, where in the dockside, where it's glass, where they're, they're having small 
enterprises based there, where they're encouraging the public to come in, where it's smaller, it's more outward looking, and it kind of says, we are a different sort of organization now. So that sort of message is very important. That's a a symbolic message rather than anything else. But the symbolism really resonates through the whole company. Wow. You know, if you look at what the head office was and you look at it now, something is shifting. And that that shift is um, then exemplified through a whole range of activities that affect virtually every single person who works in that, that company. But it's not, a, it's not an overnight sensation. It's a slow, slow journey. As I said, you know, what, what we want are organizations to feel better next year than they do this year. And it may be only a margin better, but better. You've got to have that sense of moving forward. Too many organizations is actually worse. Fewer staff doing more more jobs, for example. Cutting out, cutting out layers and then expecting everyone else to just infill without redesigning the, the workplace and redesigning the workflows. So I think there are going to be some much bigger, bigger attempts to think about how we can work better and maybe starting from if we didn't have this, how would we start from scratch? You know, to more radical rethinks about workflows because there's so much redundancy built into many workflows, so much needless, pointless work, so many needless, pointless meetings, so much checking up, uh, too much checking up and too little autonomy, too little mastery and, and, and too little sense of I achieve this. This is my area. I can drive this, which is what people want and crave. And when you go into those great organizations, that's what people will tell you. This is my bit. This is what I do. I I really contribute to the overall organization. Whereas in, in many places, people have no idea what they do, how much it contributes, if at all. So I, I think there's some radical thoughts about the future of work that's going to occur. And it's going to occur not for just because it's a good thing, it's going to occur because we need to thrive and we need to survive in this increasingly disruptive external environment. And if we don't thrive, then we will die. And we thrive because our people thrive. We can't thrive in a miserable, non-innovative, non-creative environment where there is no such thing as agility. Agility is the key word. I spend that much time working with places about talking about how to make people more agile. And, and that's a lot of that is about self-belief. It's, it's not about shouting at them. So be more agile. Right. <laughs> Just doesn't work. <laughs> or else. Right. So, so Nigel, we have about three minutes left in the show and you know, these are incredible thought provoking comments that you're making. And now we have two minutes actually left in the show. So give our audience like, Quickly, how do you get started on this journey? Three really um, yeah, I, good statements to get started on this journey of change, of transformation. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the, I think that the critical thing is to understand the reality. I know I started there and I, I should finish there. Yeah. What is it like to work in this place? What are we doing wrong? What are we doing that is betraying the enthusiasm of our people, that is betraying their their, their futures? So if, if you understand that, you can then begin to pick not a thousand things that need to be fixed, but if we did these two things much better, 
that would have a transforma transformational effect. And you argue and lobby for those two things. And then you put in place activities that will deliver on that and, and with no going back and no ability to opt out. Yep. So if you can get those two things working, then people believe that you can make things better and yep. then you've got an agenda going forward. So it's wow. really, you, you've got to be very careful in picking those two things. They've got to be higher profile enough that will make a difference, but not so unbelievably complicated and difficult that it, it, you're just on a, a, an endless an endless slog trying to make it happen. So two things that will be impactful, that are relatively straightforward to deliver, that will make people's lives better in the workplace and make them recognize that the place is on the move. And once it's on the move, then the, the people in the organization will tell you what has to happen next. They will guide you because they're, they're, they know, they all know what will make the place better. But if you so, couple that with the vision from the top, the purpose from the top, you have, yep. a, you have a real real sense of uh, energy and movement. I love that, Nigel. It's great. How quickly, Nigel, we're at the end of the show. How do people get a hold of you? Well, they're very easily. I've got a bizarre Twitter handle, which is eBase, E-B-A-S-E, -E, and there's a long story there which I won't bore you with. Um, my email is nigel at nigelpayne.com. That's very easy. I, on LinkedIn, I'm Nigel Payne. On Facebook, I'm Nigel Payne. I'm very easy to find. If you if you just if you Google me, I come up first um, because not many people have got this bizarre name that I have. So you can find me. I'm very happy to enter into conversations and dialogue with people. So I'm very very pleased with that. If you want to buy the book, then Kogan Page is the publisher. K O G A N Page. They'll send it. Um, post free to the US. And if you put in a code, which is friends of Nigel, which is all one word, friends yep. of Nigel, you get a big discount as well. So well, you know, please talk to me, talk to me about my book, if you've read it, whether you whether you think it's worthwhile and useful, and, and talk to me about some of your successes in moving forward. That's what I really love to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nigel, for being on the show. It was really insightful. It was great. We have so much more we could talk to you about. And uh, it was just a pleasure meeting you personally. I knew you'd be a great guest. And thanks. So we're signing off from Future Proof work Workplace. Uh, another exciting discussion of how to really make leadership, leader development uh, resonate and really drive change. Morag, last word. Thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good last word. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.